feast of joy, as Zechariah says it shall be. But I have seen some evidence, perhaps, that point to the thought that the siege is now being lifted from Jerusalem because that's what the fast of the tenth month was about. Uh, It was on that day that Nebuchadnezzar began to besiege Jerusalem, which uh, followed by him taking the city, later burning the temple, and then the death of Gedaliah, which was the fast, the fourth fast of the year in this series. So the beginning of it is here at the end of this year, the tenth day of the tenth month, on when the siege started. Uh, I've put together some information I think God has kind of brought to my mind to indicate when the siege started on the church of God here in the end time and perhaps an indication of when it will begin to be lifted. Uh, So uh, I I see a great deal of hope for the near future and ensuing events from now on through. I won't go into that today, but uh, I think it's important that we keep this fast today, or tonight, beginning tonight, uh, because even if the siege is being lifted, we're still under uh, difficulties, (coughs) and it's not certainly totally lifted, (coughs) and the blessings of Isaiah 54 have not yet come upon us. I suspect that even though we might see the siege being lifted and things start to improve, We may not be ready to jump for joy and sing psalms and make it a feast until the gathering has actually occurred and the former and latter rains have been poured out. But if we can see some light at the end of the tunnel and a a glimmer of, of good things to come, then that is certainly reason to be positive and, and, uh, encouraged. And I think if I get a chance to share some of this information with you, it will be encouraging to you. However, for today, we hurriedly finished up Abraham last week, and I would go today to one of our forefathers, Isaac, the son of Abraham. And let's start this in Hebrews 11, because we need this firmly in mind as we examine Isaac's life as to what it means. Is it just a historical record that has no real meaning for us, or is it pertinent for today, and does it make sense for us to go through it and look to our father Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, as we are told there in Isaiah 51 to do? So let's pick it up in Hebrews 11 and uh, verse 17. This is right after he talks about Abraham. Uh, Here he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. It was very interesting the way Paul put that. His only begotten son, because our Father in heaven calls Christ his only begotten son. So here Paul is very definitely tying the type together that Abraham represents the Father in heaven and that Isaac represents Christ in type, the only begotten Son. Uh, that's the only thing you can make of that. So God uses humans 
to fulfill types of he and his son. Let's see that confirmed more as we read on in this context. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, who is the only door to salvation and the seed of God? At this point, the only divine seed is Christ. And through Christ will God's name be called upon us. So, Isaac was the one who represented Christ and who's, uh, who represented the seed of the Father. Okay, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure or a type. So it says that Isaac was a type of Christ, right here in very plain English, and therefore Abraham has to be a type of the Father. Now going on, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, through Isaac would come the promises made to Abraham, not through uh, Ishmael. God chose between them, as we shall see. And that blessing came through Isaac, but he blessed both Jacob and Esau. Now, as a type of Christ, what does the New Testament say and how it would all come down? to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So, Israel would come through Jacob. In fact, Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. So, the blessings, the great blessings of God and the line of Christ would come through Jacob. And yet, Christ said to the Gentile later, Esau would never be an Israelite. Uh, He was of the seed of Abraham, yes, but he was not an Israelite, because that only came through Jacob and his sons. So he was, in that sense, a Gentile. Now, in the New Testament, then, Christ did open up salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And says that, uh, there in Romans 11, Paul makes it very, very clear that both are involved, and one is just as important as the other, in a spiritual delineation as such. Uh, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. Now that gets past Isaac there and begins to get into the story of Jacob, but it shows that the line went from Abraham through Isaac and then through Israel as the seed that would then begin to multiply. Now, through Jacob and Esau, even as through Isaac and Ishmael, Uh, great nations were made, uh, both Israelite and Gentile. And they would have a place in prophecy, even as they had a place in history. So what Paul is telling us here is that that history back then is a type for today and of the plan of salvation, and that those characters back then uh, can be plugged in as a direct story of the Father and the Son, and then on down through the ages of the plan of salvation being opened up, first of all to the Jew, and later to the Gentile who would be grafted in, as Paul explains. So when we read these stories back here that the Scripture tells us to go back and read and to consider, it is because they apply to us. Now let's go to Galatians 4 and see a little bit more of this narrative from Paul. 
Galatians 4 and in verse 19. Now here he's writing to uh, a church who was basically, or who were basically Gentile converts. Probably some Israelites mixed among them in a Gentile area, but essentially to uh, Gentile converts. So he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So Paul is saying here that he, in the line of Christ, or in the ministry of Christ, uh, was travailing with them that they might be formed to be like Christ. Now, Isaac is a very direct uh, type of Christ, and in a historical sense, in a prophetic sense. But let's understand here also that we each are types of Christ. We each are. That Christ be formed in you. So, even as Christ walked the earth perfectly, maturely, and in the light of God's face, we are to do the same. We are to think like Him. We are to walk as He walked, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We are to be just like Him as much as we possibly can, so that when the world looks at us, they see Christ. So that makes us direct types of Christ. So this isn't just ancient history. Now, we're not directly historically uh, types of Christ in the greatness that Isaac was. But on a smaller individual level, we certainly fulfill that. And we should comport ourselves accordingly. We should be as much like Christ as we possibly can every day, every moment that goes by. That's why he said... Be a light on a hill to the rest of the world. Be like Christ. Now, the world won't like you any more than they did Christ. But that's okay. We're to be like Him anyway. So Christ is to be formed in us. I desire to be present with you now, verse 20, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He would like to see more Christ-like character and action from them, he says. But he has his doubts about their standing, and he'd like to be with them and to be able to see growth and to be able to change his tone of voice, (laughs) because he was berating them pretty heavily here in the book of Galatians, and certainly was authorized to so do as an evangelist of God. So he goes on to say then in verse 21, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now that makes me think there were Jews involved as well uh, as Galatia, as uh, Gentiles there in Galatia, because the Jews uh, wanted to be under the law, and they always referred to Abraham and to Moses. Uh, now when, when they say under the law, We need to always understand that when that expression is used, it means under the penalty of the law. You break the law, the wages of sin is death. So we are all to keep the law of God. We are to obey it because the law is holy and just and good. It is the penalty of the law that we don't want to be under. (laughs) We need to have 
our sins forgiven and come under grace. That doesn't mean you live without the law. It means that if you perchance break it, you have the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ to call on. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. So Hagar and Sarah uh, are also types here of the people in the church and out of the church. Okay? So if we have a type of the father and the son through Isaac, then we also have a type of the mother, the church, and the bride of Christ. The mother of the church representing the Father more in that sense because we come directly under the Father. There's no instruction anywhere in the Bible that we're to pray to Christ. Christ said, pray to the Father. So Sarah and Abraham represent compositely a type of the Father. And Isaac and uh, Rebekah then are a type of the bride uh, and of Christ, Christ and his bride. And they are the ones that were called. The free woman was by promise. Now, Hagar did not have Ishmael by promise. Uh, He just went into Hagar and she conceived and had a son. Her womb was not closed as was Sarah's. But uh, Sarah's womb had to be opened. And we'll see another womb shortly that had to be opened as well. In other words... Sarah could only produce a child through a divine miracle. Now, can the Father in heaven produce children to himself without a divine miracle? A miracle had to come through Christ, and that miracle has to come through us. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So the fact that we are called or conceived and begotten, or begotten, conceived, same thing, and then born as a human being with the potentiality to become God is a miracle. The miracle of birth. And then the miracle of a spiritual begettal is even higher than that. And that is represented by Sarah. And later, we'll see, by Rachel as well, whose womb was also closed the wife of Isaac. Christ is, or Isaac was a type of Christ. Rachel, then, is a type of the church, the bride of Christ. And it is going to be a miracle if any of us become the bride of Christ. We'll see the story more clearly here in just a little bit. And I'm back telling the story, uh, in a sense, even ahead of time, I'm giving you the end of this story instead of the beginning first. Because I need, we need to understand when we go back and read about Isaac and Rebekah and these people that we're talking about now. And I want that firmly in mind before we go back there so the allegory can be made clearer. Uh, verse 24, which things are an allegory, you see, a type. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar represents the Gentile world, in other words, or the unconverted world, if you will, spiritual Gentiles. And they were definitely under a covenant, which was just a physical covenant 
of obedience, and if you didn't obey the law that came off Sinai, you died. The wages of sin is death, and there, there are no exceptions. No exceptions to that. You break one, you break them all. You die. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, is in his bondage with her children. What do you mean, Arabia? Well, that's Ishmael. <laughs> Ishmael, the twelve tribes of the Arabians. So, Arabia is Gentile, and God's promise did not come through Esau. <clears throat> it came through Isaac. Uh, and Arabia is still in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So Jerusalem, or the Jews, or Israel, uh, represents God in heaven. And she is the mother of us all. So, in spiritual terms, the church is the mother of us all. So the type is very, very real and very concise here. Isaac represents Christ, and Rebekah represents the bride of Christ, the church, the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, you barren that bear not, that's from Isaiah, uh, break forth and cry, you that travail not, for the desolate has many more children than she which has an husband. How many converted people are there on the earth today compared to how many unconverted? Satan and the Gentiles and even Israel as a Gentile spiritually, have many, many, many more children than those which are called out by God, a little flock. So God has a much, much smaller bunch of children than the devil does at this point. <laughs> the whole world is deceived and are the children of Satan. And only a few, then, are the children of God. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So he says, Isaac was the historical figure, we're the end time figure. Uh, speaking to the early New Testament church, and it was written for us, as the only reason this was written, recorded, and preserved, is for us who are also the children of promise. But as then, just like in history, he that was born after the flesh, that would be Esau persecuted him that was born after the spirit, which was Isaac, even so it is now. Even the name of Christ causes the whole Islamic world to go into a conniption fit. And we're seeing more and more killings of so-called Christians, even though they're not Christians, but they are mostly Israelites that they want to kill. So Esau... Uh, I mean, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, and Ishmael is today persecuting physical Israelites and will also spiritual Israelites as the chance comes. Nevertheless, what says the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So in that sense, Ishmael and Esau to come represent the Gentiles, and they represent Satan. They did not have the blessings that God would give Israel, and they represent persecutors, or those who would destroy or kill the children of promise. 
And is that not what Satan is using Ishmael to do today, and will soon be using Esau to do today? Well, in fact, already is. So, these things that God did back then, he did in a specific, timely manner to cause everything to happen just as it did, so it would be a perfect type for what we're experiencing today. Now, is God faithful or what? <laughs> we, this nation today is, be, is seeing these scriptures fulfilled daily in the news. Western Europe is being taken over by Ishmael and by Edom. And the United States, uh, not as much yet, but in the next weeks and months it will become very, very much more so. Because they have come in here to do the same thing that they're doing over there. Um, it's all prophesied. It said Ishmael would be a wild ass of a man. And that's the way the Arabs are today. And they are trying to destroy Israel. Okay, so with that background then, let's go back to Genesis and pick the story up there, seeing very, very clearly that these events we're reading about when we go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, are stories for today. They, they project to the end time. Now, with Isaac, let's make the point here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going verse by verse here because there's so much to the story, but uh, we've already read about Abraham and Sarah and how they were promised and then waited and waited and waited until the time was right and then uh, Isaac would be born. Now, there was an anticipation, even before Christ was born, that there was a Christ child to be born. And they waited and they waited, and John the Baptist came and preached and told about it. But time had to go by until it was time for it to happen. And God is very, very specific about it. I do believe that the seven, thousand, the seven days of creation represent the 7,000 years of God's initial plan and that they would be exact we don't sort of keep the Sabbath from 3 or 5 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon we keep it specifically from sunset to sunset that is the Sabbath and the 7,000 years will be 7,000 years now Frank Nelty and others say well we've gone beyond 6,000 years already no we haven't he just doesn't know how to calculate when creation was it's just that simple. Where is the simplicity in Christ? Christ came uh, at the end of the fourth day, 4,000 years. And it was exact because he announced on atonement the uh, acceptable year of the Lord, the Jubilee. So you simply count back 4,000 years, and that's creation. You count forward 2,000 and you will have the return of Christ at the end of the 6,000 years. And he did that in 27 A.D. So that means his return should be, uh, or 26, let's see, did he actually announce it in the 26, in 26 or 27? It comes out, yeah, the, the uh, jubilee would have to be in 27, in 2027. 
That means Christ would return in 26, but the Jubilee would be announced at atonement of the 27th, the same as it was in 27 A.D. at atonement in 27. Exactly 2,000 years. And then the millennium begins after, the, after his honeymoon and his bride is prepared to do her job. So God is very precise. Now, he also, back in this story, which is the story of the Father and the Son and of us, remember? With Abraham and Sarah, he left them hanging for a long time. And then he said, she will conceive and he will have, you will have a son a year from now. So God specifically picked the very night that Isaac would be conceived. He even picked the correct seed to cause Isaac to have the type of characteristics and personality that God needed as the heir of Abraham and as a type of Christ. God was very, very specific. Uh, Jeremiah and others says, you, you knew me in my mother's womb. <laughs> you think God didn't know Isaac before he was even conceived and then in the mother's womb? God made sure that Isaac would be what he wanted him to be. Now, Ishmael was engendered as a result of Abraham going into Hagar. There was no specific time. There was no specific anything done except it just happened. <clears throat> and Ishmael turned out not to have the characteristics that Isaac had. He represents the Gentile world and in that sense represents Satan. If Christ represents God, then Ishmael represents Satan's world as it is today. Now we'll see a little later that uh, there's reason for that. I always thought, well, wasn't it kind of cruel to dump Hagar and send her out in the desert with Ishmael and he nearly died but Paul brings that up there in Galatians 4 which we just read that she was cast out well is Satan going to be cast out the types have to fit will Satan wander in desert places yes he will are the two goats at atonement about Christ and Satan yes they are no matter what somebody tries to tell you So God made things very, very specific to make sure Isaac would be a worthy uh, child of Abraham, even as Christ was a worthy child of the Father. Uh, chapter 21, let's pick it up there, chapter 21, verse 2. Uh, no, 12 is what I wanted. At the end of it, well, let's read the verse. And God said to Abraham, Let it not be grievous in your sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. Now, I had tended, before I really understood, to kind of feel sorry for Hagar and Ishmael, in a way. I kind of understood, but I still it kind of bothered me. He says, In all that Sarah has said to you, hearken to her voice, in other words, to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. So God had to make a choice between Isaac and Ishmael, did he not? Now, did God have to make a choice between Satan and Christ? Yes, he did. Now, Satan was never a son in the same terms that Christ 
was and is. But on the other hand, Satan had set himself up as heir of all, had he not? Even as Sarah gave Abraham permission to go into Hagar and to produce a son whom she would then call the heir and whom Abraham would even have to make a decision as to which one it would be. So when Christ had 40 days of fasting in the wilderness before he met Satan and defeated him, God had to make a choice between Christ and Satan, just as he made between Isaac and Ishmael. The type is true to form all the way through. Now, Isaac was named Laughter because they thought it was kind of a laugh that uh, she could conceive after all those years and after menopause and after he was also dead that way. But it was a miracle, wasn't it? The laughter turned into an absolute miracle from Almighty God. Now, understand how Isaac grew up. Isaac grew up knowing he was specifically called of God for a particular reason. Abraham had made a covenant with God, and in Isaac his seed would be called. And do you think that Isaac was not taught as he grew up that he was to be the heir of many nations, that his conduct had to be exemplary, that he was a very, very important child in that sense. Abraham and Sarah would have schooled him deeply on that, knowing what God was going to do through Isaac. Even as royalty today starts training their princes and princesses from the time they're big enough to comprehend anything about what their future is and what child type of child they need to be to represent the throne. They go through rigorous training for that, even in today's world. So, Isaac knew all that. And as Abraham was a type of the father, Isaac was a type of Christ, and he had to be a man of high character. Now, Abraham had many sons, but he had two sons of significance. God chose between them, between Isaac, who had to have high character, and Ishmael, who was a wild ass of a man, even as God chose between Christ and Satan. Now, Isaac also had two sons of significance, Jacob and Esau, and a choice had to be made, and we'll get to that story later on, but again, two sons that were significant. So, Isaac was the Christ type that the Father chose between, and then Christ chose between God and Satan after 40 days of fasting. He had to make a choice. Am I going to follow Satan, or am I going to follow God? And he chose to follow his Father in heaven. Now, uh, Isaac chose to follow his father, and Ishmael chose to go out in the desert and live apart from him. And the same was true of Jacob, who chose his father. Now, he didn't use always the best methods, but he chose his father, and his father chose him. (laughs) So what 
was gone through there was important. Now, Isaac had to make a choice, and he chose, he didn't, he, uh, he was deceived, and God made sure that the right choice was made. And we'll get to that story a little bit later on. But did not Christ himself speak in parables that they might be taken and snared and deceived? Did not Isaac, as a type of Christ, have to make a choice there? And Christ himself said, I didn't always tell you the whole story. And he even caused the story not to be told correctly in an understandable way, even as Jacob did not make the story to Isaac in a complete and understandable way. But God's will was done in any case. Now, has Christ held back truth from the world? Yes, he has. No man can even understand unless the Spirit of the Father is open to him. So, in that family, there's an awful lot of spiritual understanding to be grasped. Now, let's go to chapter 22. We read this last week in terms of Abraham and how he was a representative of the Father, and he was to go and give his only begotten son, as Paul tells us again in Hebrews 11. And representing the Father, he had to be willing to give that son, even as our Father in heaven had to be willing to sacrifice his only begotten son. And in that case, he went through with it. Now, this was only a type, because Isaac, who was a type of Christ, had to live and had to have lots of children. So that's another part of the story. Christ ultimately is going to have lots of children. So Isaac wasn't killed and didn't need to be resurrected in that sense. Christ was killed and had to be resurrected in order to have produced children on down the line. Isaac stayed alive as a human so that he could produce children through Jacob. But let's understand Isaac a little better here. Abraham was faithful, and when he went ahead with what... God laid out that he was to do. He says, now I know, Abraham, that you will be faithful and true. Well, he was a type of the Father who is faithful and true. His word is faithful and true to us. We can depend upon it. But let's look at Isaac here now. Verse 8 of chapter 22. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for burnt offering. So they went both of them together. He said, Abraham said, Don't worry. Things will be taken care of. Now, doesn't God tell us to walk forward in faith and not to worry? Things will be taken care of. We don't always know exactly how or when, but the Bible gives us an awful lot of how and when. And it's becoming much more clear as we go on. Or much clearer, for proper English. And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do you anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now he had, as I said last week, he had said, Isaac, come here, son. And he tied him up and laid him down on the altar. He literally raised the knife to kill him. Now, did Christ submit completely and totally 
to his father and says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And don't you think that was going through Isaac's mind when he saw his father tying him up and didn't resist? He went along with it. And there on the altar, he must have felt very alone and very betrayed seeing that knife being raised over his head. Now, did God choose Isaac on the right night at the right moment with the right seed to produce a type of Christ? That was a very, very specific conception. And Isaac was able to have the character that was born partly from his conception and partly by his training. It was uh, genetics and nurture, if you will. So he knew that he was special and for a special reason to produce children for Abraham. Now, Christ knew that too, but he still felt very all alone and forsaken when his father actually had to turn his face from him to allow him to be killed. So we see here a powerful character in Abraham, a powerful faithfulness, and we also see the same kind of faithfulness in his son Isaac, who was a true son of his father. Ishmael was never that in the same sense at all. And I don't think Ishmael would have submitted to this. <laughs> that was not the type of character he was, but Isaac was. Satan would not submit to this, but Christ did. And we have that to think, that we now have not the penalty of the law death, but we all have the grace which is brought through the death and resurrection of our Savior and His mercy, and He would prefer mercy and not sacrifice. Now, chapter 24, uh, I went through to some degree last week with the story of Rebecca, and I don't, will not go back through it in detail today, but let's understand this, that the story is quite long here. It goes through a very long chapter of the Bible to explain exactly how Rebecca was chosen for Isaac. Now, understanding that Isaac is a type of Christ, we have to also understand that we, as the bride of Christ, are a type of Rebecca. We represent Rebecca. Rebecca was very willing, willing to share, willing to serve, willing to give, willing to submit willing to go wherever she needed to go to marry her husband, who had gone, was off in a far country. Didn't Christ say, I go off to a far country. When I come, I'll take you with me, and you'll be forever where I am. In this case, uh, Isaac didn't choose his own wife. And in fact, uh, Abraham did not choose the wife. He sent a servant, a very, very trusted servant, to go and find the right bride. Now, this man had to have miracles done for him. He prayed, he asked God's guidance, and that God would see to it that everything was done right. Now, don't you think that God had figured out ahead of time where this servant would go? Abraham told him where to go. 
and that the right family would show up as it did at the well and that it would be the right one, the virgin Rebecca, who would be there and who would offer to serve the servant of Christ. Now Abraham perhaps could have gathered himself up and gone. He had been restored by then. And he could have found her himself. Or he could have said Isaac. But what has God done with the church? No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So the calling has to be of the Father, who certainly went ahead uh, and directed how this would happen. And then instead of sending uh, Isaac himself, Christ uh, ordained apostles and a ministry to go forth to help find a bride for Christ. Now, the calling is through the Father. The redeeming is through the Son and His blood. But Christ appointed a physical ministry in the Old Testament of priesthood under the physical covenant, but today a spiritual type in the ministry to go forth and to prepare the bride. In fact, that's what the ministry is told to do, is prepare the bride of Christ. She's said, told to make herself ready, and the ministry is part of the bride. So they are there to help point her to Christ to be her husband and to the Father. So the type is perfect here of the way God is handling the New Testament church. The Father and the Son are far away on the sides of the north on their throne. They direct things from there, but Satan is here as a representative of the other side, of non-Christian or uh, the Gentile world. But the ministry is here to look to the Father and the Son and to point those whom God calls uh, to their husband-to-be and to his Father. That's what we're here to do. Uh, people who say we don't need a ministry don't understand the Old or the New Testament. Period because that is the direct type here of the bride being, uh, or the, the ministry going after the bride. Well, what did we do in the years of building Worldwide Church of God? People wrote in to the mother in Pasadena, and the ministers were sent out to help teach them, gather them, analyze them, baptize them if they judged by the fruit that they were repentant. Not everybody can baptize. Not everybody can anoint. God has given that as a specific responsibility to those whom he's called to that job. And that is very limited, and it has to be by choosing an ordination. So anybody that says otherwise doesn't understand the Scripture. I'm sorry. So this wife was chosen, Rebecca, carefully and miraculously. And every one of us who comes to understand is called miraculously, and our mind is opened. You have tried to open the mind of friends and relatives, and it didn't work. I was reading the autobiography last night about Herbert Armstrong thought suddenly once he understood he needed to go out and convert all his relatives and friends. And it didn't work at all for him, and it hasn't worked for anybody since. That's been our experience. 
God has to open that mind miraculously for that person to be called. I noticed something else there interesting in there. I forget the page number now, but uh, Mr. Armstrong says that the biggest frustration and disappointment in the early years of the church to he and Loma was that so many people would have their minds opened and they would come and they would attend, they'd get baptized, and then they'd fall away. He said they had very, very dear friends in the church who, for whatever reason, would turn around and go the other way. And I thought, boy, you talk about things being repeated. <laughs> Did not Christ say, and, her, and Mr. Armstrong even uh, used this in the context there. He said, it's like the parable of the seed, the sower. Uh, some on rocky ground, some in the thorn, some on good ground, and so on. And he said he and Loma had the exact same experience, and we've had the same experience here. Some that we love very dearly uh, have departed over the years, and there's been big turnover, and recently had a whole bunch that we know and love who have gone a different direction. They've rebelled against what God is doing here. They think they're following God's will, but they're not. You don't do what they're doing with lying and trying to steal land uh, and have God's uh, blessing. You just don't. So, I, I, I had circled that when I'd read the autobiography years ago, but it didn't hit me like it did last night, uh, since we're experiencing the exact thing, same thing that, that uh, Herbert and Loma Armstrong faced and was very grievous to them, just as it is to us. All right. Uh, Rebecca showed Proverbs 31 character. Uh, now, here's an interesting thing I had never thought of until this morning. After Isaac had his wife and the future of Israel through Isaac and Rebekah was ensured, uh, Abraham married another woman, a much younger woman, probably about a hundred years younger than he was, give or take a little, uh, and had a whole bunch of kids, six kids through her, and then he had other women that he had concubines that he had other children through. So after going through all that time and only having two sons to choose between, even as the father had to choose between Christ and Satan. That story was out of the way, and then these other women started having kids. Now, he married Keturah. Now, what significance could that have? Why is that story even in there? Why did God allow Abraham, after all this, to remain virile after he was restored and to have all those kids? And none of them were of any particular significance. That was only Isaac and Ishmael. Let's look at that a little bit. Keturah comes in the Hebrew from Strong 69-89, and it means a feminine passive participle of 69-99. It means perfumed. Now, what does that have with the, to do with the price of beans? Let's go on. Keturah is from Qatar, uh, number 7,000, and it is identical uh, to Keturah through the idea of fumigation 
in a close place. Fumigation means get the foul smell out, basically. Okay? And perhaps thus driving out the occupants. In other words, this is something that occurs because things smell bad. They have to be cleaned up and the occupants may be driven out in the process. That's what the Hebrew word means. It goes on to further the definition to say to smoke, that is to turn into fragrance by fire, especially as an act of worship. To turn into fragrance by fire. In other words, if you have a foul smell and you kindle a fire, it will absorb and take out the foul smell and you can have, as a result, a good smell or a fragrance or a perfume. You still don't see where I'm driving. (coughs) The King James Version uses that same word that's used for keturah to, is translated as to burn, as an incense or sacrifice. It can mean an altar for incense. There you have fire that produces a sweet smell or savor to God. Okay? Gets rid of any foul odor, but it becomes a sweet smell to God once the sacrifice and the burning is done. It also can mean to kindle, that is to build a fire, or offer as you do a sacrifice and incense to God. All right. Isaac represents the line through whom Israel and Christ would come. Ishmael represents the Arab world who would be against the brother Isaac. Now we have all these other people who are named there as sons of Abraham and the concubines' kids who aren't even named, representing a whole bunch of people. Is that the rest of the world? Now, Satan would and will use Ishmael and Esau against Israel in a significant way, did back then and is now. But to Keturah's children were of little consequence. Now, Moses did go to the land of Midian and marry a woman whose father was a priest in Midian. So the Midianites, one of the sons of Keturah, were out there in the desert where Moses went, and he married Jethro's uh, daughter. Now, Jethro would later come and be with Moses, with Israel, going through the wilderness, and Jethro would help Moses get the government of Israel organized there by putting in a series of judges instead of Moses having to do everything. So Midian, one of the sons of Keturah, is mentioned there somewhat. Uh, I want to read a couple of scriptures here so we might begin to get the picture clear. Uh, Judges 8. Judges 8. And uh, here let's go to 28. Uh, Well, let's go to 27. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah, 
And all Israel went there, a whoring after it, which thing became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Now Gideon had saved Israel from the Assyrian army, and now Gideon wasn't doing too well. And anyway, it says, Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. Uh, so Midian had come against uh, Israel here and was subdued so that they could raise their head up no more. Now let's notice in Isaiah 60, the sequel to this, Isaiah 60. We'll put it together here in a minute. And let's begin in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Eternal is risen upon you. So God is going to uh, cause Israel to rise and shine as a light on a hill very soon now. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. So God wants His people to rise and shine just as the darkness comes over the world and the new world order and Satan's uh, government is instituted. And gross darkness the people, but the eternal, sh the eternal shall rise upon you. This is speaking of the church. And His glory shall be seen upon you. He's going to come dwell with us, as He says in Zechariah 2, and His glory will come and will be like Eden. And the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, it's going to end with our rising from the earth to rule in the kingdom of God, and the Gentiles are going to come when Christ brings His bride back to rule. So they're going to see that the story ends in the rising of God's church to meet Christ in the air. And when He comes back with them, they're going to submit Okay? Lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to you. Your son shall come from far, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. So they'll be our children in the millennium. Then you shall see and flow together, and your heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted to you. The sea represents billions of people. The forces of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. Now Midian was a son of Keturah. So was Ephah. There were six, but two are mentioned here. That's enough of a sampling. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth your praise, the praises of the Eternal. <coughs> what does this say the children of Keturah are? To me, it says, they will go through the days of darkness and terrible times, <coughs> and in the millennium, and particularly the great white throne judgment, when they are raised up, they will come to worship before Christ and His bride. So Isaac represents Christ and his half-brothers and half-sisters, <coughs> haven't been real sisters and brothers, will come to worship before Christ, as typified by Isaac.
So Keturah, I think, represents <coughs> those who survived the Holocaust into the millennium and those who are raised up in the great white throne judgment who then come. Let's tie one more to that. Habakkuk. I think I finally understand about Keturah. Never did before. But this makes sense and it fits the scripture. Uh, Habakkuk (coughs) 3. Now here, he's describing this very end time in the book of Habakkuk talks about the financial crash that is almost upon us in the first chapter of Zephaniah and talks about the Assyrian and the Chaldean here in Habakkuk that is coming to destroy Israel. So that is the context is the end time right now. Notice uh, verse chapter 3. Here's a prayer of Habakkuk. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Eternal, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known, in wrath remember mercy. Now, isn't that what we're praying right now today? That we've seen all this destruction of the church, and we're looking right now at the beginning of the destruction of the nation. And we're crying out to God to remember us in mercy in these days of wrath that are coming. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. That's what Habakkuk is praying, is that Christ will come, as he says He will in in Zechariah 2, to His church, His bride. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. So he's calling for Christ to come, not in great power, but to His church, to help her in mercy, as he says he's going to do in Haggai and Zechariah. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. So the pestilence on Israel is going to come at the time Christ comes to show mercy on us. Now we've already gone through spiritual famine, pestilence, and the sword. And we're almost at the end of it. Uh, The siege against Jerusalem, the church, is almost over. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. So this is a time, speaking of the day of the Lord to come, when Christ is going to drive asunder the nations, the Holocaust. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. He's going to destroy that which is temporary and usher in that which is perpetual. Now, verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan, or Cush, in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So here he's using Midian as a type in the end time of those upon whom the anger of Christ are going to come when he destroys and casts asunder the nations. Well, now, what is the ultimate conclusion of that. Most of the population of the earth will die in what he's talking about right here. And they will not be seen again until when? The great white throne judgment. Therefore, he's using Midian here as a type of those who will be in the great white throne judgment who were destroyed here in the apocalypse at the end of the age in the day of the Lord. Now, I think that nails my theory down. The Keturah, with all those kids, children of Abraham, but not the children of promise, 
will be in the Gentile world and they will come up and become true children of God in the great white throne judgment. It says they'll come and worship, we read there in Isaiah 6, when this occurs. Here it says that they're part of that which is destroyed. And then Isaiah says, once that's done, they're going to be resurrected and come to worship before your feet. So there is where Keturah and her children fit in the story. The types back here are specific and they are exact for the end time. Keturah being part of it. Now you know where Keturah fits. Because the scripture says so. Now in chapter 25, we're about to wind this up, uh, of Genesis, Genesis 25. Go back there for a moment. Uh, Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, uh, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Pandan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. So, uh, the Syrian here was in the family of Abraham, uh, and, and he was married into that family. Now, I think it's interesting here that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. What is 40 in the Bible? It is pictured, or it pictures a time of trial, of testing, even as Israel was tested and tried 40 years in the wilderness. Even a year being as a day, Christ was tested 40 days before he could face Satan and qualify to marry his bride. That's what was at stake there. Satan wanted to marry the world. Satan wanted to rule the world. He was covetous of that which would become the bride of Christ. Is he not covetous? Is he not trying to take us all away from Christ today? Yes, he is. To destroy us, in fact. If, if, you, if, if I can't have her, you can't have her either, is his attitude. You see that evidence sometimes in human uh, stories where... Uh, Uh, a man will kill the husband or kill the husband-to-be and say, if I can't have her, you can't have her either. Or he'll kill the woman saying, nobody's going to get her if I can't have her. That's what I was actually looking for. Satan's saying, if I can't have her, I'm going to kill her. That's what he's doing. So he went through 40 years of trial and testing before... Uh, He was married, just as Christ went through 40 days. Now, Moses went through 40 days of fasting in the time of trial and also lived through the 40 years, 40 days and 40 years. Uh, You know, he had to be tried and tested before he could be given the law of God. (laughs) Even as Christ had to be tried and tested to see if he would obey the law of God or the liberalism of Satan so that he could qualify to marry the bride. And when he defeated Satan there in that testing, after the 40 days, he qualified to be the bridegroom. It was set up long before, but he had to be tested. Now also consider that Rebekah was barren also. The father 
was typified by Abraham, and Sarah was barren, and therefore it had to be a miracle of the Father that his son could come to this earth and could miraculously live 33 and a half years without sin and then go through death and resurrection and qualify. So, the cupboard was bare. (laughs) God's cupboard was bare until Christ, by miracle, was conceived on this earth and came to be the Savior. So, Sarah is a direct type there of the mother of Christ. Mary is a type of Sarah. Now, the same was true with Isaac. She was barren for 20 years, Rebecca was. Couldn't have any children for 20 years. There was some half as much trying and testing there, maybe. And then she conceived and had uh, Jacob and Esau. Now... God had to perform a miracle for Israel to be born. And God has to perform a miracle today, as I said, every time one of us is conceived and made a candidate to be born into the kingdom of God. It is by divine miracle of the Father and the Son. It has to be that way. So, a lot of prolific people around. There are a lot of people born to the sons of uh, Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth. And then out of the line of Shem, one man was faithful. And one son was faithful, Isaac. And one son was faithful, Jacob, who became Israel. So God had to perform miracles. Now the others, a system was set up whereby births could be. And the earth populated up to billions of people. But there was no particular miracle other than the miracle of conception and birth that is common to man and animals. Because the system is set up and, hey, it works most of the time. But here you had two women who were specifically chosen, but they had a problem. They were barren. They could not conceive children. And God had to divinely cause children to be born to those two women. Now, Abraham could have children by other women, Hagar, and later Keturah, no problem. Isaac could have had as many kids as he wanted through other women, but not through Rebekah. God chose women and closed their womb on purpose, so the miracle had to occur. We have nearly 7 billion people on this earth, and none of them can come to the Father except an absolute miracle occurs, which has occurred in your life and mine. That is incredible. What a story this is when you really get into it. Now, let's see. Let's go to chapter 28 here just for a brief moment. We'll wrap this up. Uh, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. So Isaac did just as his father had, said, You're to go to our people and you're to find a wife there. 
and God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a multitude of people. So Isaac blessed Jacob as, and we won't get into Jacob's story right here, but uh, that blessing was to be carried on through Jacob as we see here. Uh, I was going to go down here to Genesis 35 now. Some of the story of Jacob and Esau is told here because Isaac was involved and in conferring blessing where blessing needed to be. And I don't want to get into that story until we get to Jacob and Esau. So we'll kind of pass over that and go to 35 uh, and here verse 27. And Jacob came to Isaac his father to Mamre unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac journeyed. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years. So he lived a hundred and eighty, uh, five years longer than his father. <clears throat> and Isaac gave up the spirit and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I think there's something significant in that. Now, Jacob is the one who had received the blessings. Esau was on the outs. Esau had a terrible attitude throughout and threatened to kill his brother. And yet, here they were together to bury him. Now, Isaac was a type of Christ. And Jacob and Esau will come to Christ in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Esau will return. Now, whatever will happen to the original Esau, we don't know yet. But the scripture does not say he is lost. It simply says he had a really bad attitude and he couldn't change it. But was he really ever called and converted? Not in the way that Isaac was. So he may not have been lost. He may have... He may have had his children carry on his attitude who still hate Jacob to this day. But they as a people may indeed be brought back in the great white throne judgment by coming to Christ who's represented here by Isaac. So God has a plan and a purpose worked out and that purpose is actually revealed right here through the patriarchs. And Paul made it very, very clear as we saw at the beginning in Hebrews and Galatians, that this is indeed the picture that we're to get from these people's lives. Now do we begin to see a little more clearly as we go on why God says, look back to the hole from whence you were digged, Abraham and Sarah, and then on down through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on. So I, there are some very, very powerful spiritual lessons to learn here. And we find even Keturah is part of the story for a very, very important reason that all the Gentiles and children that were not through uh, Isaac also will be saved in the millennium and great white throne judgment.